you may or may not have heard of the term New World Order. There are three words here. New, world, and order. So new suggests something that is a change from the old. World suggests that new impacts the entire planet and all the entire human species completely. While order suggests that it is about a new legal, political, police, military, technological, and economic framework for the humans to follow. Presidents Mikhail Gorbachev and George H.W. Bush, that's Bush Sr., used the term to try to define the nature of the post-Cold War era and the spirit of great power cooperation that they hoped might materialize. Gorbachev's initial formulation was a wide-ranging and idealistic concept, but his ability to press on it was severely limited by an internal crisis in the Soviet Union and ultimately its collapse. Bush's vision was summed up in his statement, and I air quote here, a hundred generations have searched for this elusive path to peace, while a thousand wars raged across the span of human endeavor. Today, that new world is struggling to be born, a world quite different from the one we've known. End that air quote. Back in 1990, Bush outlined what his objectives for a post-Soviet Union governance structure was. And I'm air quoting it. Until now, the world we've known has, become, has been a world divided, a world of barbed wire and concrete block, conflict and the Cold War. Now we can see a new world coming into view, a world in which there is the genuine prospect of new world order. In the words of Winston Churchill, a world order in which the principles of justice and fair play protect the weak against the strong. A world where the United Nations, freed from Cold War stalemate, is poised to fulfill the historic vision of its founders. A world in which freedom and respect for human rights finds a home amongst all nations. End that air quote. Oh, by the way, Bush also said, there is no substitute for American leadership. That's an important point, right? And then he goes on to say, and I'm air quoting again here, now we can see a new world coming into view, a world in which there is the very real prospect of a new world order. End air quote. So here, Bush outlines eight American, I mean worldwide, I mean American, goals. One, justice. Two, fair play. Three, protect the weak. Four, against the strong. Five, the UN has a greater role. Six, freedom. Seven, human rights. Eight, all nations. So let's break this down. Remember now, this speech was in 1990. The Berlin Wall is down. The USSR is in its last legs. In fact, the USSR will be dissolved just over a year after this speech. So, so we are at that unipolar moment in US history where the US is about to embark on this unilateral hegemonic path that would last all the way to 2014. In fact, you should check out my episode on Pax Americana. That's episode 69. 
So when Bush Sr. is talking about all this new world order and freedom and human rights and so on, what he is saying is that American values are universal and U.S. values will be universal. The Americans knew that they had an opportunity like no other before. No one could compete with it. And like any good power in any good vacuum, they wanted to fill the void that was left by the USSR. Also, as the hegemon, the U.S. was the one to decide what justice was, how it would be meted out, and who qualifies for justice. Like all good seekers of justice, it was not the one to be at the receiving end of said justice. The insane part of Bush's speech was that it applied to all nations. In that seemingly unimportant bullet point, was that break from the past. Unlike the past, where only the so-called free world, technically led by Bush himself as its self-anointed prince, consisting of the usual suspects, the EU, or what was the EU, NATO, US, Australia, New Zealand, etc., on and off Japan, South Korea, maybe. That was the free world, you see. Now, the free world was free compared to the unfree world, that being everyone else was now technically free. What we saw in the years after that speech highlights U.S. policy, the extension of U.S. policy to its allied or vassal states, and by further extension to other countries. But since then, people have been using the term New World Order for all kinds of things. Former UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown, for example, called the era from 2008 to 2009, you know, that financial crisis, as part of a new world order. So it's been used rather liberally. There are a lot of people who think of new world order as something that resembles a world run by elites in corporations, big tech, big media, big government, who use technology to develop consent, to shape public opinion, so that control is made easier. Think propaganda, but think propaganda on steroids. Then you can couple that with the dystopian vision led or laid out by Orwell in his book 1984, and you should check out my episode on the history of the future for that. Anyway, and then you begin to realize why sections of society would be concerned about such a future. Some suggest that this could even be a conspiracy theory. I don't, by the way, I don't think there is a conspiracy theory. I do think, however, that some people in high places have a desire to create a new world order, but I don't think it's everyone who is in a position of authority. And well, no, I do not, because they all have to have the same vision. Go. I also do not think People at any level are organized enough to or even to go organize effectively in order to enforce a world order. Humans are just too stupid, independent, and brilliant all at the same time to do any of that. They'd rather fight, kill each other, and go to war than obey some random person somewhere else. So let's break this apart. Globalism. Globalism is the idea that there is a centrally controlled government by elites, typically liberally-minded elites, to run economics,
politics and cultures through control of the human communication ecosystem. This globalization has accelerated since the 1800s due to rapid advances in transportation and communications technology. This increase in global interactions has caused a growth in international trade and the exchange of ideas, beliefs, and cultures. In 2000, that's the year 2000, the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, identified four basic aspects of globalization, trade and transactions, capital and investments, migration and movements of people, and the dissemination of knowledge. A couple of sociologists, Martin Albro, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth King, defined globalization, and I air quote, as all those processes by which the people of the world are incorporated into a single world society, end air quote. Anthony Giddens writes in a quote, globalization can thus be defined as the intensification of worldwide social relations which link distant localities in such a way that local happenings are shaped by events occurring many miles away and vice versa, end quote. In 1992, Roland Robertson, professor of sociology at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, and also an earlier, he was also an early writer in the field, described globalization, and I'm quoting, as the compression of the world and the intensification of the consciousness of the world as a whole, end quote. So there are multiple definitions. Take your pick. Just now, it's about the world coming together in some kind of way that's typically socially, politically, economically, and collectively one liberal world society. No one is more closely attached to globalism as a man named Klaus Schwab. He is the Swiss-German founder of the World Economic Forum, WEF, or WEF, based in Switzerland. The forum, which is mostly funded by its 1,000-member companies, typically global enterprises with more than 5 billion U.S. dollars in turnover, views its own mission as improving the state of the world by engaging businesses, political, academic, and other leaders of society to shape global, regional, and industry agendas. The WEF is mostly known for its annual meeting at the end of January in Davos a mountain resort in the Eastern Alps of Switzerland. The meeting brings together some 3,000-odd paying members and selected participants, among which are investors, business leaders, political leaders, economists, celebrities, journalists, and they all end up staying there for five days to discuss global issues. Next to Davos, the organization convenes regional conferences in locations across Africa, East Asia, Latin America, and India, and holds additional annual meetings in places like China and the United Arab Emirates. It furthermore produces a series of reports that engages its members in sector-specific initiatives and then provides a platform for leaders from selected stakeholder groups to collaborate on many projects and initiatives. The forum suggests that a globalized world is best managed by a self-selected coalition of multinational corporations, governments, and civil society organizations, which it expresses through initiatives like 
the Great Reset and the Global Redesign. It sees periods of global instability, such as the financial crisis of 2007-2008 and the COVID-19 pandemic, as a window of opportunity to intensify its programs. The Great Reset. This is the name of the 50th annual meeting of the World Economic Forum that was held in June 2020. It brought together high-profile businesses and political leaders, and it was convened by Charles, the Prince of Wales, i.e. the future King Charles III of Britain, with the theme of seizing upon the global COVID crisis, it sought to rebuild society and the economy following the pandemic. Klaus Schwab described three core components of the Great Reset. The first involves creating conditions for a stakeholder economy. The second component includes building in more resilient, equitable, and sustainable ways based on environmental, social, governance structures and metrics, which would be incorporating more public infrastructure projects. The third component is to harness the innovations of what was to be called the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The head of the IMF listed three key aspects of sustainable response. One would be green growth, two would be smarter growth, and three would be fairer growth. And in all of them, there is growth. Schwab used the phrase Fourth Industrial Revolution for the first time in a 2015 article that was published in Foreign Affairs magazine. He used it again, but really the annual meeting in Davos in that year, that was the big one. That's when it began. Schwab said that the first industrial revolution was powered by water and steam to mechanize production. Through electrical power, the second industrial revolution introduced mass production. Electronics and information technologies automated the production process in the third industrial revolution. In the fourth industrial revolution, the lines between physical, digital, and biological have become blurred. And this current revolution, which began with the digital revolution in the mid-1990s, is characterized by a fusion of technologies. This fusion of technologies included fields such as artificial intelligence, robotics, the Internet of Things, autonomous vehicles, 3D printing, nanotech, biotech, material sciences, energy storage, quantum computing, blah, 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 blah. But globalization isn't exactly new. We've had cultural globalization for ages. That's why you can listen to the Beatles in the US and Nirvana in the UK. That's why you can eat fish and chips in India and alu gobi in England. Economic globalization is also nothing new. Trade is as ancient as humans. However, the modern idea of brands like IKEA or Samsung or Apple are signs of globalism. Political globalization is still not really there, but international bodies like the WEF, the WHO, the UN, the EU, and the IMF or World Bank are actually all globalist ideas and institutions, even though technically they were not formed with that in mind. What these fancy World Economic Forum types have created inadvertently is a forum for the rich, the wannabes, the powerful, 
to go meet in a nice Swiss location once a year. They discuss hot air and think they own the world because, well, have a lot of hubris. These WEF globalists are globalists and they are the ideological manifestation of the reality of what is actually happening on the ground. In other words, these people are loud, rich, and powerful, but simply have not, as yet, been organized enough to, in air quotes, rule the world. Globalization is that Bush New World Order. It is the globalization of primarily American values and American trade. It is the expression of what U.S. liberal politicians call the rules-based order. Of that, the West is in of itself one single component, but its most visible component. Globalization is Coca-Cola everywhere, McDonald's everywhere, Apple and Google, Facebook and Netflix, massive U.S.-owned tech companies who own and control the global narrative. Everyone has to use them. Citibank, MasterCard, and the U.S. dollar hegemony in the form of the petrodollar. Oh, by the way, check out my episode on petrodollars that was right before this particular one. Globalization is the U.S. market, the U.S. stock markets, and the rest of the world revolving around it. Like a middle kingdom, big companies would offshore and nearshore production to drive down costs, all to service the endless appetite of the U.S. consumer. Backed by an elaborate chain of supply chains to fill Walmart stores and Amazon warehouses. But in the new world order were the seeds that would be the beginning of the next new world order. Because of course, these things keep happening over and over and over and over again. In this new new world order, the U.S. is joined by one, possibly two, even three other global hegemons who can and would challenge its supremacy. If you listen to my episode on U.S. hegemony, I argue that the U.S. unipolar hegemony ends in 2014 for a number of geopolitical reasons, but it also marks the early period of a new, new world order. The weird thing about globalization is that it works both ways into as well as out of the U.S., but in and out of everywhere else too. So it has both benefits and negative consequences for the new world order that Bush kicked off in 1990. In my view, there are at least five of these consequences. One, other countries have agency of their own and can act in their own long-term interest. Two, People in other economies can trade with each other without input of, from, or knowledge of the main hegemon. Three, if economic greatness is backed by the U.S. dollar, then protecting the USD from external shocks are well and truly good, but so is protecting it from internal shocks. Four, outsourcing, offshoring, nearshoring are wealth transfers from rich Latin Christian countries to ones who are racially, culturally, and civilization different. And five, 7,000 years of human civilizational history tells you that when you 
contract a severe case of hubris and enroll in bloody wars that drain your economy, expect some fallout. Now, let me tackle each one of those five in turn. First, other countries have agency of their own and can act in their own long-term interest. In this global worldview, the U.S. and its allies discounted agencies in other countries. In other words, that others would not challenge or even really, really, really challenge the main hegemon. That's an inconvenient truth, unfortunately. Everyone ultimately fills the power vacuum and people try to beat the hegemon. Secondly, people in other economies can trade with each other without input or knowledge of the main hegemon. Meaning, globalization isn't just about trade between the U.S. and its allies or trade between the U.S. and everyone else, but also trade between others not related to the U.S. or its allies. That means trade between Brazil and India or between China and South Africa. Third, if economic greatness is backed by the U.S. dollar, then protecting the USD from external shocks are well and truly good but so is protecting it from internal shocks. What do I mean by that? Well, I made a podcast episode on the US dollar hegemony already, so go check that out. But though the US spent a lot of money on wars and propaganda to make sure the dollar regime remains paramount, over the years, the US government itself has undermined faith in the USD all by itself. First by debt, second by quantitative easing following the financial crisis and COVID, and finally and most importantly, by endless sanctions on any country, group, and individual you could possibly think of. Fourth, outsourcing, offshoring, nearshoring are wealth transfers from rich Latin Christian countries to ones who are racially, culturally, and civilizationally different. It's nice to have McDonald's in Russia, Coca-Cola in China, Google in Brazil, and iPhones in India. It creates U.S. hegemony. Conversely, it also allows the U.S. companies to look at non-Western countries as cheap labor destinations for both goods and services. So there is a problem. Yes, you can sell U.S. Boeings to Vietnam, but Vietnam also offers cheap labor. Meaning, over time, these countries learn and grow their own manufacturing and service sectors. Once it is built, the industry can function with or without the U.S. So, Vietnamese clothes could also then be sold to markets in India, for example. It doesn't always have to go back to the U.S. You see, ultimately, people can trade amongst each other. And fifthly, 7,000 years of human civilizational history tells you that when you contract a severe case of hubris and enroll in bloody wars that drain your economy, expect some fallout, meaning simply that getting involved in the business of invading countries, regime change wars, sanctions as an extension of war, running military bases at 150 plus countries, the war on terror, the war on drugs, and all that, all of it comes back to bite. Because over 7,000 years of recorded history, what we do know is that if you piss enough people off, then they stop liking you. That in real polity is a breach of trust and has a severe geopolitical hit in long run. That brings us to the present, May 2022, but more specifically, the future.
Right now, this moment as I'm recording, the two big geopolitical earthquakes are, one, the aftermath of the COVID pandemic and the U.S. ambition to contain and destroy Russia as a blueprint to contain and destroy China as the second. I agree that it is a simplistic view, but from the POV of the U.S., if the USD and the U.S. hegemony are the primary focus of U.S. supremacy, then these are the only two challenges that really matter. Russia and China are two of the countries that really need to be contained from a U.S. perspective. Of the two, China is the real threat in every sense. But in U.S. minds, a combination of hatred for all things Russian, bordering on xenophobic Russiaphobia, clouds minds and forces a narrow focus on Russia over China. In the end, making the two allies, i.e. Russia and China, closer together and thus posing a danger to the exact same U.S. hegemony it so desperately wants to keep. But it also pushes trade partners away. You see, COVID showed, if nothing else, that when it comes down to it, every country becomes a fortress and does its own thing when push comes to shove. Countries like Canada or Germany or the U.S. that claim to run free societies often stomped out dissident, dissent, dissent against COVID vaccines. What this vaccine nationalism and all kinds of things related to things like PPE and countries hoarding content and information and also countries hoarding goods and supplies meant that globalization really when it came down to it was a pipe dream. It worked when things are going well, but it didn't work when things are not going so well. But what was the reaction to Russia's war in Ukraine in early 2022? Well, it showed that the U.S. is willing to sanction the biggest country in the world, the country with the largest nukes in the world, one of the world's biggest food and fertilizer exporters, as well as one of the largest energy exporters, and then expected the rest of the world to do exactly the same. That did not happen, and of course it could not happen. Now, some examples. India set up a rupee-ruble trade system. China also dealt with Russia in Rambini. Most countries did not put sanctions. Indeed, in a matter of weeks, the U.S. dollar hegemony started to crumble apart as countries started doing business in their own currencies. Why? Because rich Westerners were asking poor people in Sri Lanka, Peru, South Africa, Indonesia, Iraq, etc., to go hungry because of some conflict in Europe. Because Europe technically matters more than a poor Sri Lanka does. Because seemingly hypocritical Westerners who wage wars in Iraq and elsewhere suggest that Indians should pay more for petrol because of a random war in a faraway land. The West lost something. It lost the ability to project the liberal order onto the world like it used to. You see, countries that would otherwise have been strong-armed by the Americans, such as Mexico, took note and followed India and China and kept out of the mess that was going on in Europe. They thought, not my problem. The ramifications of this development were that there really is a new, new 
world order. But it is not designed by big shots at the World Economic Forum, nor is it designed by the US government, but instead by this emerging multipolar world that has multiple strong powers competing and collaborating all at the same time. And that is just the start. What I see in this new, new world order is a fragmentation of authority so that decisions made in capitals across the world are there across the world, not in one location. And it is across regional groups, not in one regional group. In short, I see deep decentralization, the flip of globalization. Globalization being Americanization will go into reverse. The decentralized model will be mostly trade and commerce, but will also be financial with non-dollar exchanges becoming prominent and even the rise of cryptocurrencies as a viable decentralized exchange. This is the new, new world order. Smaller countries will now have options as well as opportunities as long as they have the agency to take advantage of them. And the center of geopolitical gravity will shift to China and then to China and India, where frankly, it has been on and off for the best part of 7,000 years. So the new world order is a revision back to the old, less worldly, more decentralized, and much less order. So it's a old, decentralized regionalization, not really a new, new world order. If you're worried about the World Economic Forum, I would not be. These people are simply not organized enough to run everything. Humans hate other humans and in time prevent them from getting too much control. Besides, I think humans are too thick and stupid anyway to want the control. Now, you know, the new, new world order is not what you think it may be. It's not this global liberal utopia that many people in the West would love to see. It's not. And luckily it's not. That's my view anyway. I'm biased. Well, that's it for this episode. Take care till next time. All the best. Thank you very much. 